Welcome to the Thrills and Chills podcast brought to you by ShareBird and Clue. This is a show about establishing product marketing and being the first product marketer and hearing about the challenges they faced. I'm your host, J.D. Prater, and today is episode 10 and the end of season one. Over the course of this season, you have heard from many of the first product marketers at a lot of different types of companies, big companies, small companies, startups, from series A all the way up to series D. We've heard from VPs and directors and senior PMMs, and I'm really hoping that you took away a lot of great, valuable insights to help you understanding what it takes to be the first product marketer and establishing product marketing at your company. Before we meet our guest, a quick word from our sponsors at Clue. Meet Jen. She's selling her division's product to a savvy new prospect, and unfortunately for Jen, she's about to get blindsided. So that sounds great, but your competitor just launched something very similar. How do you compare? Jen needs to move fast. With a few taps, she leverages up-to-date intel her product marketing team has curated with Clue. Later in the show, we'll hear more on how Clue helps reps like Jen win deals every day. Learn more at clue.com slash thrills. Today's guest is Rehan Mirza. He is the VP of growth at Verifiable. Before that, he spent some time at Culture Amp and Zenefits and Checker. So, Rehan, tell me about joining Verifiable. You are coming out of Y Combinator. You've got this seed round of funding. You went from a big company to something that is like right from the very beginning, fresh out of the gate. Yeah. I think as I look at my own product marketing journey, I've gotten a chance to do a lot of different things at fast growing companies. So when I was at Checker, it was all about getting them to scale, helping them mature, build out their overall sales motions. I then went over to Zenefits, did some stuff, really helping them move from a category shift, right? They were a digital broker onto a SaaS company. And it was all exciting stuff there. I think more recently, I was at a company called CultureAmp, where I did a lot of really building out their global product and customer marketing teams, really helping them go to market into a new space where they were launching into. And so with each of these companies, I'd gotten that experience of living at different stages of their growth and their journey, but they were all still fairly established, right? They were well-capitalized, Series B, Series E companies. I had been in the market for a while. And so sometime kind of at the early part of 2020, I really started wanting to go early stage. I wanted to get back to the ground level and really start working with a tight team to solve a problem I was really passionate about. And so that's really what led me to Verifiable. I had a background in healthcare. I'd gotten to do some management consulting for health systems in the first kind of wave of Affordable Care Act and kind of gotten burned by the complexity and the slow moving nature of that industry. But really looking at 2020 and what had happened with the pandemic, it really felt different this time around. So in terms of coming and taking a look at Verifiable, we're right in the middle of the health tech space. We're an API platform that's powering all of what's happening in digital health, helping a lot of these new wave health tech virtual care organizations run faster. And that was just something I was really excited to be a part of. And this time it felt a bit different in terms of the appetite for the overall space itself. So yeah, really excited. I've made the move and coming on full time and running with Verifiable here. Nice. So what I'm hearing is like, we've got a familiar industry. We got Mm -hmm. this opportunity to build, which is super exciting. You get to kind of have full ownership of what product marketing is going to look like for a very young company. So you've Mm -hmm. been at these more mature companies, established companies. You've talked about category shift. Where do you think you're going to start? I mean, you're roughly a month or two in now. So what does that look like starting PMM? 
Yeah. So what's interesting about Verifiable is it was a, a slow ramp courtship, you could say. So when I initially came in, I was serving as an advisor early in their kind of infancy or earlier in their days before they went through Y Combinator. I was just giving them advice and guidance on different segments to go after pain points, market entry, strategy on that front. So I got to be pretty closely involved with the CEO and CTO during that journey. But to your point of where to start, I think for me coming to Verifiable, one of the intrigues of this challenge was to go wider in terms of my purview and my role. So product marketing and strategy go to market is still very central to it, but my role is going much wider into demand generation, into content, into our overall marketing strategy on one front. And then additionally for us, especially as you look at some of infrastructure companies and data infrastructure companies, partnership and channel becomes even more important as you're not going to be just running a direct sales motion, but it really is where can you put your solutions in that power the next wave of solutions that are getting getting built atop of it. So I think that's what got me excited was I'd gotten to do the enterprise PMM playbook before I've built out kind of what that looks like at varying degrees and sizes, but jumping in here. So that's the two areas for me that have been most central has been BD channel partnerships. And then on the second side, it's really going to be on the demand generation and really spinning up what that looks like for us here at Verifiable. Oh, that's pretty cool, man. So it's like really a much broader lens, right? You get to be a part of this whole, like almost full go-to-market strategy across all channels, all BDM, all of the marketing channels and the levers yep. that you get to pull. That's pretty cool. One thing I'll, that I'll I... just say real quick, I think that's where I've seen that be most successful too, right? I've been on some of these small go-to-market teams and projects at companies. And when you bring in put product, sales, BD, marketing in the room, all working in sync, I think that's when you really see go-to-market coming together. So again, trying to replicate that or coming into a small team, I think that's what gets me excited to see those go-to-market like Captain Planet functions come together into something awesome. <laughs> <laughs> a previous guest, he referred to it as being a Power Ranger and becoming a Megazord. And so we've got Captain Planet, which I also grew up watching. So I'm right there with you with Captain Planet. I'm yep. also right there with Power <laughs> Rangers. So basically everyone's coming together to form this one cohesive unit. And that alignment is key. I absolutely couldn't agree more. Do you think it's easier with a smaller team to get that alignment? Or do you think it's a little bit easier when things are built out and a little bit more structured? Yeah, that's an interesting question. You have fewer resources to check you when you're right or wrong, right? I think that's so like the, the speed or the ability to make a decision and execute. I think that path to A to B is definitely a lot faster at the startup. But I think what you end up missing is kind of the support teams around you to be able to bring in their areas and their lenses of expertise to help you on some of those decisions. So where previously, like you may have a pricing team or you may have a team that runs channel and already has those existing relationships and kind of can help you navigate a field. I think you're operating on thinner slices of information that you can move more quickly on, but that just means you either have to be more convicted in your bets or you have to have the ability to get feedback really quickly in terms of some of what you're doing so you can continually adjust and parry as you need to. But so it's a different set of challenges. I wouldn't say one's easier than the other. I think you just got to know what you're missing out or where your gaps are in terms of what you don't have and then adjust for that in your strategy and make sure you have the flexibility or the mindfulness that you don't know in some ways. I would love to get into resources now. You're talking about resources. I mean, it's nice having big company resources and totally. it can, you can <laughs> like move and it can get a little comfortable. How do you balance that now, right? You're going to have to be a little bit more scrappy. You have a little bit less resourcing. Does it stress you out at all? I could see like, ah, I don't have the resources. Who's going to do this? I, I think 
I came into coming back early stage with a definite growth mindset. And I think what's actually been helpful for me is a lot of the stuff that I used to have teams or folks and people to be able to come out and run and do like and report back to me. I now am needing to get into the HubSpot email itself and do the AB test itself. There's a lot of things that I, it's been a while since I've done. And it's actually making me a better marketer all over again and a better messenger all over again, kind of getting back to those foundations. So I wouldn't say it stresses me out. I do think it continually forces me to think about prioritization because at an early stage startup, when you're coming back in and jumping in and building the marketing engine from scratch again, there's so many different places that you see value, right? And at a large org, you've probably squeezed the juice out of a lot of them and you're kind of in that optimization, last flattening of the end curve there. Whereas everywhere you look, you can ride. There's so many different places that you see value, right? Pretty steep curve of improvement or of value and you can't do it all at once. So the biggest thing that probably stresses me out isn't as much resourcing as what is my system for sequencing what I want to tackle and take on at a small scrappy company where I could apply myself in 30 different places and all of them would have some significant impact. But I have to obviously think of how do I align that to the company strategy and product strategy and, and what our go-to-market is. And you got to just like leave some value on the table because you have to prioritize where you put your own effort and you can't do it all. I like it. Yeah, no, I mean, prioritization is anyone out there listening, if you've listened to any of these episodes, you're going to hear uh, everything I'm at. Like you have to prioritize and yet some of us are still so bad at it. Like we're still yeah. being really reactive. So my question for you. Uh, I was just going to oh, say on that was just that I think even at large companies, I'm sure you hear that as you mentioned prioritization. And I think with the PMM role, you're always attached at the hip or beholden to so many different stakeholders. So like, even if you're got your team and your game down in order, it may be that sales is a completely different strategy they want to run with and products pulling in another direction. So I feel like no matter what, small or large, product marketing, because of that stakeholder matrix that you need to manage, it's always, how do you negotiate those trade-offs or how do you get people to tell, get in that boat and prioritize with you if it is a larger company? Whereas for me, I've, obviously I get to own my own universe a little bit here. Yeah, which is really interesting because whenever I was thinking about this too, do you think, I mean, obviously our past experiences are equipping us for what we're currently doing, but do you think that you needed those more established companies and PMM experience in order to come back and now do it at this level? Or do you think this could have been your first job? This could have been your very first PMM experience. I don't think it's a one route has to kind of lead into the other. I, I think it definitely benefits, right? I think that there's value and having seen it and done it before that really carries in, especially having seen it at organizations that I think have parallels and paradigms that you are looking to follow, right? So again, with Checker, I'd gotten to work with an API first company that had really pushed forward on modernizing background checks and channels became really important there. So I got to see what that looked like. I think coming in some of the other experiences, whether it was benefits and kind of being in the health plan and healthcare space, all of that and brokers and working with them, specifically seeing how channel is done or partnerships are done. Like there's a lot of value there. That said, I think some of the best product marketers I've interacted with and worked with are actually first time product marketers coming from a tangential discipline. They're coming from, I came from consulting when I first moved in there and it was just around how do you project manage? How do you stakeholder manage? How do you communicate? How do you build trust? All of those things aren't exclusive to product marketing, but I think there's certain elements of it that once you've done it once 
or twice, that project becomes that much easier, right? Like your first pricing project is always going to be a huge, like, <sighs> so heart, hard. like heart attack <laughs> and like, not sure if you're doing it right. But once you've gotten through it two or three times, you get a sense of it. So I think one doesn't require the other. I think you definitely learn obviously a little bit in the rodeos when you go through them. But if you're starting on it, or if you're a listener here and you're kind of jumping into it the first time around, I think a lot of it just comes from the biggest thing I can recommend if you're kind of a first time product marketer or a first time go to market individual is just really focusing on understanding your customer, right? So that's where the best product marketers I've seen have come from the outside is they come from understanding the pain point. They come from understanding the discipline that they're selling into, right? They know the buyer's pain. They know what the personas are. And that's not, again, specific to product marketing, but it's one of those things that if you have that insight, that's the industry, that's the space that you're going to be really strong as a go-to-market leader or product marketing leader. Yeah, that's for sure, man. Those are all very good points. Whenever you're thinking through establishing product marketing, right? So this is mm -hmm. a very early company. What are some of the things you're thinking about over the next year? You know, this is 2021. You've been able to be a growth advisor. You've been able to see them develop. Where are you thinking it's going to go? Yeah, there's all of the basics. There's the blocking and tackling. So I won't spend too much time on that, but that's kind of like getting your messaging and your kit of your first wave of collateral built out. I think the more interesting thing to talk about or the more interesting tension that continues to exist at early stage companies and even late stage ones for that matter is how much of your roadmap is driven by existing customer, existing customer requirements and maybe the dollars in your pocket right now or where they're coming from versus where you see the vision and where the bets you expect the company to make and where they need to go. And I think that's something that, for example, we're going through right now, which is we have a great offering. We have an initial ideal customer profile, super fast closes. There's an immediate pain point for them there. But obviously there's going to be that trade-off of either resourcing or dollars or time or whatever it is we need to spend that really builds into what our vision is two, three years out or the rest of 2020 at the end of this year in terms of what our solution and our platform can really help address into additional use cases, into additional buyer types moving from providers and telehealth into payers and health plans. So again, there's a jump that we need to make there. And so that's kind of what's forefront of my mind is how to do that with some foresight. And also, again, how do we tell that story to varying different audiences, right? So we may have a different story or what we need to be able to communicate to a existing customer in an upsell versus a new prospect that's coming in and looking to build with us versus investors as we come out and look to tell our narrative for our series. A, which again, as we look at that, we need to be able to make sure we have a vision and we are convicted in a vision that carries on well past 2021. Yeah. Uh, is a lot of that, has it been, or sorry, should I say, was it in place whenever you came in? And so you're having to just fine tune, rework, or are you really starting straight from scratch, blank canvas? It's probably somewhere in between, which I think is verifiable came out of Y Combinator this fall. We had a really compelling offering with our solutions that could plug right in as we were seeing telehealth take off, right? So you're seeing mental health benefits, you're seeing virtual care platforms, um, seeing quite an acceleration. And for us to have an API first strategy that plugged this data directly into the system they needed to live in most, it kind of fit an immediate need, right? There was an initial product market fit that we didn't have to, I want to say think too hard about, but it made sense. It worked, right? 
right? So our initial outbound or initial messaging really emanated from seeing what was landing with our customers. And that's still there or that came in. I was able to really kind of put that in pocket and make the most of that. I think it's the next layer or that next wave, knowing that the island that we started on isn't going to be the only place we expect to be. And I think that's what I'm really working through now is what is that evolution and what's that next stair step we move into with our messaging and what is it? Knowing that there's three, four different places we can go with it. Again, going back to that notion of sequencing, what is the next key message that we build out? Because I think when you're selling into large industries and one as complex and as wide as healthcare, there's no shortage of problems or challenges that you can go address. And especially as a data company, healthcare is a laggard. It typically has been one where they haven't digitized in the same way. So there's lots of opportunities for our platform to plug in. But I think our vision and messaging is really about that sequencing and showing that we have a plan to move forward. And that's more of what I'm working on. But that initial kernel that we started out with was there. And I was fortunate to have a great product market fit to really give a strong base to build on. Now we'll pause for a quick word from our sponsors at Clue. Not a day goes by in sales that someone doesn't ask how your product compares. Earlier, a friend Jen dug herself out of a tight spot with Clue, the product marketer's platform for handling all things competitive. Clue helps product marketing teams collect intel from coworkers, Slack, emails, and the web, putting it all into one place that's always up to date and giving Jen the superpowers she needs when she needs them. Listen in at the end of this episode to hear how Clue empowers every team across the org with insights, something we call competitive enablement. Learn more at clue.com slash thrills. That's K-L-U-E dot com slash thrills. Oh, that's pretty cool. Being able to come in with something that's already in place is always nice. I always find myself a much better editor at times than I am a writer. I don't know if any uh, other product marketers feel that way too, but I'd rather, yeah, what do you got? First draft? Cool. Like, all right, yep. now it's nice and sharp, but coming up with that first draft is always a lot of work that goes into that. And at least for me, there's definitely a lot better writers out there than me. But one thing that I'm really curious about within your career and this move to a seed company is how did you know that you were ready? for this, right? I know there's a lot of people out there that have asked me this question. How do you know? Was there something for you that you were like, I'm ready to take this on? Yeah. I mean, I'd started thinking about what a move to an earlier stage company would be well before kind of the craziness of 2020, but it was something that was always a little bit out in the horizon, right? It was something that was a couple years out, two, three years. It was something that I'd put on the shelf and was like, okay, like when I'm ready, I'll be there. I'll take that leap. I think there was that acceleration that happened for me in this past year, which was where do I want to be spending my time? What is it that I want to be jumping in and doing? So like, I think the industry became important to me again. I had a background and a first go in healthcare, health tech, I started triangulating what were my superpower industries. So it kind of was like healthcare on one side, identity and some of the work I'd done at Checker on the other, benefits and HR tech were on one space. And so that kind of gave me a little bit of this field map for what I was most interested in as I looked backwards on my career. And I was like, oh, these are the things that like you piece these together and I've gotten to know really well. So that kind of gave me a bit of that potential solution set. And then I think for me, the next piece was I didn't jump in right away with Verifiable, I would went out and said, hey, how can I actually go out and find a company that's early and hungry and be useful and help them solve problems and be open with my time? And I thought that really helped me de-risk this overall journey because I think when you go to early stage, so much of it is how do you work with the rest of the team and the founders and what does that look like? So it was a nice long dating process in that regard. And I think <laughs> we got to learn working styles, but I think what's more important, we also got to learn 
conflict resolution styles, which was really important for me. I think kind of going in and working with Nick, our CEO over here at Verifiable, there was definitely times when I didn't have as much time to give as an advisor or they needed me to move faster. And just being able to negotiate that and how that was navigated gave me a lot more confidence in what it would be like to work for someone like this. So I think I got to learn, I got to know the industry, the company and those types of things and all of that felt right kind of from like a technographic, formographic point of view. It's like, yeah, check, check, check. But then I also got to go in and learn some of the intangibles, which was what is it like working with this team? Can they execute seeing that over a period of time? And I think that's what got me feeling much more comfortable with it. And then the last thing I'll add, I wish I was more cavalier of like Michael Jordan or like you miss 100% of the shots you don't take type thing. And like, it just kind of jumped in. It wasn't like that. For me, I think it was important to come in and de-risk and do a little bit of that analysis, even within my own kind of personal situation. Was I ready for it? Could I afford to make some of the equity to compensation trade-offs at this stage of my career? And then also, again, I really thought about what's the upside potential versus the downside risk, right? And I kind of weighed that in. And I think with it being a space I was passionate about and a team I'd gotten to know really well, it allowed me to jump in and continue growing and take this opportunity on and feel like, you know, regardless what this is, I'll get a net positive experience out of it. And there is a bit of a realization here that being in the Bay Area, there's always going to be a, a Salesforce or a Facebook or to some degree to come back in a period or years of time. And so I think for me, it really became how do I maximize this point in my career and my journey to really come in and build. And that was the calling that I wanted to pursue. Oh man, really good. I love the framework. I love how you dissected that problem, how you came about it. I think it's such a great way to like really think through how you go into a seed stage company. And some of the things, just calling it out, like understanding the team, understanding who the founders are. I liked how you talked about these are the people you're going to be working with. And you know, when you're at a 20 person team, you, you're going to be really working close together. You're going to be rubbing yep. elbows, right? It's <laughs> not like these larger teams and larger companies where you may not even see each other. I know we're all remote, but still these types of working environments are really important. And then I really like what you said about the tech companies. There's always going to be big tech companies that are always going to be probably hiring for PMMs. Yeah. And I think we're lucky to be in product marketing, I think is one of the tech careers or that if you were to map out the frequency that you see them or the veracity that companies are hiring with, I think there is something there where as a skill set, it's continuing to be more and more in demand. And I think many companies are seeing the value for great product marketers to unlock uh, a variety of different frontiers for them, whether it's on the sales front or on the marketing and campaign front or the product front. So I think that was fortunate to be able to be in a profession or I guess a kind of a level of skill and training that I think allows me to jump into that area. But I think my end, it really was, I kind of thought of it as like my personal sharp ratio. Like how do I maximize the upside and you know still feel confident that I could take this decision and this risk. But yeah, that was like when you're talking about the like decision-making frameworks and the criteria is just to, to throw out there to the audience. Uh, I've been reading Annie Duke. I don't know if uh, you got huh. the chance to read this author or not, but she was kind of a psychologist into a world champion poker player. And she has this book, one's called Thinking in Bets, which is all about how do you, there we go. I just pull it off yourself. Love it. You're right there. <laughs> I got it. I'm right there with yeah. you thinking in bets. Yeah. And then the other one was how to decide where actually funnily enough, she talks about how to go through kind of what are the decision-making frameworks to use? And she actually oh, kind okay. of jumps in and talks about career pivots and switches and how to actually move away from a pro-con list and into something a little bit more refined. So if you find yourself at home thinking about that, I get no royalties or have no stake in this game <laughs> other than it's a book I recommend. But yeah, I think those frameworks are always helpful to think about how to break down the complex into something that's more manageable and navigable for you yourself. 
Yeah, for sure. And we can make sure that we include links to those in the show notes. Maybe we can get affiliate links or something and make some money off go. all these clicks. Yeah. We'll share it with you. <laughs> Monetization, JD, a true product marketer. I dig it. That's fantastic, man. Well, let's shift. I mean, the name of this yeah. podcast, Thrills and Chills, right? So when you think about your career as a product marketer, you've got to work with some of the best companies out there from different stages, series, industries, what are some of those thrills and some of those chills? Yeah, I don't know if it's human nature or what, but I feel we sometimes don't stop and celebrate. And I think I'm also kind of of that mindset, which is like a lot of my thrills, I think, have been experienced in aggregate. Or it's when I've gotten to see numerous gong calls or recordings where my deck and messaging are landing. And I'm like, oh, cool. I get to zoom out and see that picture. And there's always just something when you feel you get to see your messaging nailed, right? Like the AE executes it well. The prospect offers up whatever it is in discovery that shows what matters to them and you tell a story that clicks and differentiates and you can really hang your hat on storytelling. So I think seeing those, I'll put live in air quotes, but you know, I think that's the power of a tool like Gong or Chorus. You don't have to ride along anymore, which obviously you still should do to some degree, but seeing a little bit of that magic and being able to track it in aggregate is really valuable and helpful. Or again, like you're, some of the opportunities I've had to launch new products or move into new spaces. And it's usually in that eventual rear view, right? Like you can do so much within product marketing and there's so many steps, but obviously when you get to see it realized in revenue or that's the spot when you're like oh wow like that wasn't something and now we're doing x million dollars in written revenue here and you get to think about all of those micro decisions that got to make you successful so unfortunately there's not a big bang unveiling of the product or pulling the curtain up that kind of got me juiced but i think that there's a lot of those small decisions there's probably a couple product turnarounds i think that i hold near and dear where just by not understanding the buyer buyer's needs targeting the wrong buyer and just being able mm. to go in under understand that and move over by 15, 20 degrees of who holds the budget or what pain are we actually solving and seeing that turnaround. I think there's just like an innate fulfillment that comes from that, even if it doesn't manifest itself into a big bang, but you see it at the very end of your work. Yeah, for sure. Well, in a couple of years when verifiable IPOs, we'll be able to look back at this episode and hopefully we'll be able to add another notch to the thrills. Yeah. yeah <laughs> All that storytelling uh, and messaging. I feel like this ride is going to be definitely more of a thrilling ride. So yeah, that's good. definitely that's look good. back on it. Well, let's talk about some of those chills. Yeah. <laughs> I knew you'd go there, JD. I know you would. <laughs> I'd say probably the biggest chills in one particular instance is where I had a sense we were going uh, a bit to market too fast with where our product was at in terms of there's always that balance or that tension, which you want to be early and fast to market, especially in kind of a, a SaaS environment where you always know your three closest competitors are thinking about something similar. And obviously being first in the analyst community or in the customer's mind has a significant value prop and product development methodology is also you don't build whole solution as you launch it. So where do you draw that line is always, I think, a continued a tightrope for a product marketer to walk and also kind of be the balanced viewpoint in the room between sales wanting to move quick and product perhaps wanting to move as, I don't say conservatively, but as like well-baked as possible and sort of like, how do you walk that line? And I think one instance that comes to mind for me is again, where I had a sense we might've been moving too fast with our product going to market too fast. And we we're in this strategy room and we're outlining everything that would need 
to be built into our particular platform to go into this new market. And we sit there, we whiteboard out all of the capabilities, all of the expectations of what it would mean to be a platform of this scope. And I think the VP of sales was in there and he asks the product managers, like, how much of this can we do today? Or how much in our next release or where we're at? And the product manager is like 80%. The sales leaders, you know, got a meeting is like, okay, great. Like this makes sense. Walks off and it you know, goes off and gets a little bit of a swagger in his step. Then myself, the product manager and one of the kind of solutions architects are sitting in the room and we're like, okay, well, look, let's actually go through and map out or checkbox everything that we have that we believe we can actually do. And we kind of like did the line by line and maybe 20, 25% of the capabilities are, are, are kind of mapped out there. And, you know, so that was, I think one of the, you know, especially a little bit earlier in my career, which is like, you don't know, you want to be friends with everybody. You want to be able to be an asset and resource and help deliver oftentimes like amongst teams that are almost pulling you in different directions, right? A product team is going to be pulling you in one direction, sales and your go-to-market teams might be pulling you in another. And so that's one of those instances that sticks out, which is like, I'd heard one answer and I knew what we were operating with. And I knew kind of what our CEO, the information that they had or how they were thinking about it. And then on the other end, I knew under the hood where we might stand. And I just remember the meeting, I built out the messaging and positioning and whatnot, and had kind of went out and was talking again with those sales leaders. And he was, the sales leader was just like, Rayhan, this all sounds great. And of course, love it. It all makes a ton of sense, but I need you to be really honest with me. Can we actually do this? If I go tell my sales teams, are you going to be, if we bring this into a deal, how are we going to look? And that was one of those kind of moments where you felt oh, like man. your heart sort of constrict <laughs> and you're like, okay, no matter how good the messaging and the slides are, I need to make sure that the sales leader and their teams are going in eyes wide open. And you know, it was something I was able to have that discussion with. And you start leading into these discussions where you're pointing to bringing the CEO in, bringing the chief sales officer in. And it was just one of those things that had hit that point where I don't think it'd go much further. And that's definitely one of those chill moments or chills in the, the negative side of things, I guess, where you're like, it's time where we really have to own up and figure out and be honest with ourselves and then make decisions, which we still may sure. choose to push on to sure. go to market, but at least be making it where we are all operating with that equal understanding of information. And so, yeah, I guess maybe there's some product marketers out there that can relate to that, which is kind of feeling like you're racked in a couple of different areas. And as you're marketing, you in your head are asking that voice of like, well, can it actually like, would it hold up? Like, would a customer be able to do everything they need to? So, <laughs> Oh yeah. man, that resonates hundred percent with me. I've been at some companies where they like to put V1s out. Like that was always put out a V1, just put it out. Yep. And there's so much limited functionality that it actually led to a poor customer experience. And so then it's like, are you actually getting the information and the data that you need to support a V2 or a V3? No. So let's build a V2 and put the V2 out and like, don't show the V1, maybe like limited beta, you know, early access, you know what I mean? Like let's rein it in. And that it's so frustrating sometimes because you put something out, you get terrible experience. There's a bug here because you rushed it out. I've, I can definitely relate. Yeah. And actually what's been really, I feel fortunate to have had was, for example, at Culture Imp, I ran both product and customer marketing and those two functions sitting next to one another and playing with one another, kind of interacting with one another was the best peanut butter and jelly I can imagine. And again, if you can set up your teams in a, in a manner, it allows you to get in again with your customers in a angle and in a way to be able to really have a clear sense of those pilot programs or those early access programs and build those out in that safe space and that testing ground where sometimes 
times when I think customer marketing, again, a new discipline has often sat, has been in lifecycle marketing or in a demand generation function. And there's value to that there too, especially if you're a multi-product platform company that's trying to cross-sell and whatnot. But being able to have product marketers and customer marketers thinking about what that early access, those adoption capabilities and who to go to instead of just, it allows you to operate with a bit more of a scalpel than an ax when you're looking at your product market and go-to-market plan and saying, cool, like, let me figure out how to carve out what makes sense in a risk managing approach. So you don't have a negative experience for your customers or for the market because you can't unring that bell sometimes. Oh, hundred percent. Well, such a delight, man. Thanks for coming on. I, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I wish we could go for an hour plus and maybe we should just break it up into several episodes, but either way, I really appreciate <laughs> you coming on and just talking with us. It's like so refreshing. Someone that's seen the movie, right? As we say, you've seen it and now you're getting to kind of implement your own script yeah. and that verifiable. Yeah, thanks, JD. I just definitely appreciate what ShareBird's doing. I think it's awesome to have a community out here like this and getting to learn from one another. So props to this podcast and what you guys are doing. And it's awesome to, yeah, just continually being able to learn from each other's product marketing journeys. Because I think what you see is there isn't a typical path, right? And so all of the different ways that people go through things, you pick up a lot. And I think it's awesome to be able to put out there into the world. Yeah, hundred percent. And you're not alone. We're all out here (laughs) to help you out. So please reach out if we can help, but thanks again for your time. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks, JD. Salespeople want short, digestible insights. They don't want 17 page decks that are scattered across the web and who knows where. Clue makes it easy to create and deliver battle cards. In a pinch, sales teams can find them easily with all the insights they need on how to handle their competitors while working a deal. And with Clue, it's not just sales teams who want battle cards. The product team, customer success, and marketing, they all compete too. Now, everyone can compete to win. For any of you wondering how to put together a competitive enablement program, or build battle cards that your sales team will love, head over to clue.com slash thrills. That's K-L-U-E dot com slash thrills. Tell them that I sent you, and they'll set you up with a bunch of free resources that you can use to get started. Thank you, everyone, for being on this journey through season one. We'll be back in a couple of weeks to uh, kick off season two. And in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss that first episode of season two. And if you have any feedback on our episodes, the things you like, things you want to hear, things you don't like, email podcast at sharebird.com. That's podcast plural at sharebird.com. This podcast is produced by Sharebird, the peer mentoring platform for product marketers. It's a place to discover on-demand resources to help you with product marketing. A special thanks to Alex for helping bring this show to life. Jolisha is our senior editor. Serbi is our master scheduler. Our podcast art was designed by Vika Karpitsky. Our music is by Joaquim Karud. And of course, Jason and Katie over at Clue. As always, thanks for listening.